So have you decided what we're talking about today? Yes. What, what, what is it? I can't tell you. D&D discussion podcast by me, Zaf. And me, Dan. And today, if you haven't gathered from our title, we're going to be talking about how to make combat a little bit more interesting. Because I find that combat sometimes can be a little bit, it can be a little bit slow, it can be a little bit clunky. If you're just gone from a really nice patch of roleplay, sort of open open play, skill check based play, and then suddenly there's a fight and... It just turns into one person doing something, taking a while to do it, then another person doing something, taking a while to do it. And from going from something where everyone's involved all at once and everyone feels engaged to a sort of turn-based system, it can be a little bit... Sorry, the sticky tape is making (laughs) Dan laugh again. Oh no. Oh, I didn't make this up. We can't keep this going every time. We We can't. Dan, say something. The table is quite sticky. No, that's not what I oh, wanted you sorry. to say. <laughs> say another thing. There are many different Try again. Ways. <laughs> there are so many ways to make combat interesting, like from knowing what you're going to do on your turn to describing your actions in more detail than I attack him with my sword. Yeah, definitely. Well, what do you want to start with? Like, we've got a few things... Got a few ideas. Yeah. When you start, it's difficult because I want to say don't be too repetitive. But when you're attacking with only a sword mm. in your inventory or at early stages, you are going to have to use the same things. But like I mentioned earlier, adding flavour to them. Yeah. Just Definitely. like describing how you attack them instead of just going, I stab him. Yeah, especially for non-magic users, I think combat can be a little bit frustrating because it's always, your turn is almost invariably, it gets to my turn, I roll, I hit, I roll however many dice worth of damage, then maybe I'll take a bonus action, who knows, that's the end of my turn kind of thing. So actually sort of spicing up the act of making an attack can really change just I suppose what I'm trying to say is providing a narrative to the actual motion of attacking really does make a difference. It goes from, oh, I stab him, to, you know, you swing your sword, the guy tries to sort of shift away or duck away uh, away from your, your attack, but you still manage to clip him on the neck and sort of blood starts to well out of the, you know, just, any, just anything. And that's a pretty shit description that I just did there. But it's more than you, you stab him with your, yeah. with your big pointy sword. That's like, you know, because otherwise... Well, I'm very glad it's big and pointy. The big it? and pointy. I mean, a small blunt sword is just... It can do damage. What's a, what's a small blunt sword? A what dagger. No, no, that's a small sharp sword. A knife. A spatula. A butter knife. <laughs> oh, yeah, a spatula. Okay, fine, fair enough. A butter knife is also good. But, yeah, um, doing that can make a big difference. But also, it doesn't. you don't always have to flavour it as different ways that you can hit with a sword. Like, I think using the environment, I think we'll talk about it in the sort of a more tactical sense in a minute but just describing the use of the environment in the middle of an attack is wicked like I don't know instead of because instead of you swing your sword the barbarian the enemy sort of bandit swings it swings his sword then you swing yours and the bandit swings his maybe if you're fighting out you know in the wilderness the bandit picks up a handful of dust throws it in your eyes and takes a takes a swing at you just to sort of like put you off balance a bit and that might just be for flavor it might just be, you know, the the bandit's doing something a little bit interesting. It makes you like it makes you stumble back, and that's why the the bandit did more damage on this particular attack yeah. than the last one. Um, um, what else? Oh yeah, so like as you're saying, one of the easiest ways to do that is is right at the end of the battle when 
normally the DM gives you the option to explain how you kill him, how mm. you kill the the bad guy with the classic Matt Mercer phrase. How do you want to do this? Mm. Like that's that's an iconic way of leading into a vivid description. Yeah. But that can be done throughout all of your attacks, even yeah. whether they miss or whether they hit. Yeah, definitely. The how do you want to do this is a bit of a treat for the DM because it means that you don't need to necessarily put a lot of work in describing the attack. You give the player the opportunity to do it. But also, if you're a DM, it's probably because you sort of quite enjoy the sort of storytelling aspect. You probably quite enjoy that. So introducing a vivid description to the attack can be fun for you as well as it can be fun for the player. And it just makes combat much more interesting and more exciting. It adds a little bit of variation to every single attack because mechanically, it's quite often the same. You know, you roll your dice, you roll your damage dice, you do your damage. But the variations in damage, I think, can often be a real real help in telling you how to describe um, something. For example, a player is always happier to roll, I don't know, 11 on their d12 if they're a barbarian compared to a 1 on their d12 but the thing is you can make that interesting if they roll an 11 and they land a really solid hit in the middle of this person's chest and they deal a lot of damage you can hear some bones crunching underneath as the sort of blade sides into them and that you know that's really sort of vivid but then if they do if they manage to because the thing is when you roll a, a low thing on the dice, you do less damage, you feel like a bit of a failure, even though obviously you had no choice in the matter, it's just the randomness of dice. But if you roll low, then you can colour it as if the opponent did something that sort of caused yeah. your character to... to like a little kind of dodge out of the way, but you still catch them. Exactly, the like the um, bandit sees you coming, shifts out of the way, you manage to sort of clip their shoulder a little bit and it's still and you sort of see their, see them wince in vain you know you've done a little bit of damage but you didn't quite hit them as hard as you wanted to and that way not only does the player even though obviously they know in their heart of hearts that um, <laughs> that it was the dice you know there's nothing they can do about it their character still is experiencing these feelings and they the player is living through their living vicariously this life vicariously through their character's feelings so if you if you describe it as not necessarily being a failure on the part of the character, but the enemy being clever or difficult, then it just makes it a little bit more interesting and more fun for the player. I think another option that allows for a lot of roleplay, particularly for Bard, because mm-hmm. if you consider the Bardic inspiration that they get to give, and yeah. normally it's in a either song format or providing inspiration. I know when we first started playing... We didn't really know what bardic inspiration was, and I was, I resorted to just going. You can do you it <laughs> every single time. Yeah, <laughs> which I mean, you know, it was very encouraging. It did, it did become a joke at the just for future campaigns, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I think the second time I tried to play a bard, I definitely gave it more of a go with the yeah, inspiration. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing is, there's all sorts of mechanics. Like, we'll talk about bards in a bit more detail in a later episode. But like, I think there are a class that requires quite a lot of creativity yeah. on the player's part. You really need to sort of throw yourself into it. Yeah. Whether you're being the sort of traditional bard or being Indeed. a bit more, you know, even vicious mockery. That's like yeah. a joke telling thing. Yeah. You don't have to be fun. Well, you, actually, yeah, yeah. you do have to be fun. It's like. Wait, is it Vicious Mockery? Is it Tasha's Hideous Laughter. Tasha's Hideous Laughter, I was yeah, thinking. that's the one. Vicious Mockery is coincidentally what they um, used to call Colin Mockery after his <laughs> his drug-induced rages on the set of Whose Lives Anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. I feel like he didn't do drugs. He's Canadian, let's be real. <laughs> um, I'm sorry so, if I've put you under that umbrella, any Canadians listening... <laughs> That you don't do drugs. I'm sure some of you do, and you know what? You know, power to you. Yeah. Isn't it? Isn't weed legal in Canada? Weed is legal. Weed is legal in. Is it not good? I think so. Probably. It's definitely, yeah, yeah. It's either legal or they've started the legalization process. Yeah. I was really. Which like, I get. I get the point of just like. Is it really killing people? Right. This is <laughs> let's get political back. <laughs> we might have to get back. Popping back to using the environment a little bit, um, 
first of all, I think improvised weapons are massively underused, and I don't agree with sticking to the damage dice given in the in the player's handbook. I think it's what a d4. It's a d4 for, for an improvised, which is the same as a dagger. Which is the same as a dagger. But if you think about that, if I'm using a chair to hit someone, whereas I'm slicing across them with yeah. a dagger. Dak is going to do so much yeah, more. It's, yeah, well, I suppose the thing is they combat that with, if you're prof- if you're good with the dagger, e.g. a rogue, bonus. you get proficiency bonus, but also you get things like, you know, sneak attack, yeah. finesse weapons, um, um, you know, have all sorts of benefits beyond, you know, actually just physically doing damage. And if you hit me with a chair, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna feel it. But also, if... The if, frying pan industry is also not to be um, <laughs> confused, because if you hit someone with a frying pan... It doesn't make the, like, miraculous clang sound yeah. as shown in films. I think we should yeah. touch on that. Yeah, definitely. So please don't go around hitting your friends with frying pans. Yeah, although uh, a sort of tangled build rogue yeah. who uses a frying pan as her um, primary weapon would be a lot of fun to play. And that hair, can you imagine? You so get disadvantage on all of your movement just in case you tripped over it. <laughs> yeah, I know, but you'd have like you have like a whip, you That's have like true. pulleys, you have have you seen that film? It's pretty it's a good the it's things a good she film. can do with that hair. Um, Disney sponsor us. Um, but yeah I don't agree with sticking to those damage dice I think if a player's if you know if you're hitting someone with a chair then I think almost treat it like an unarmed strike maybe give it a d4 just for you know just for fun because it encourages the use of it but if a player's being particularly creative with um, improvised weapons then up the damage a bit I think encouraging the use of improvised weapons makes the game much more fun like um or just like you know, the, the, I mentioned the throwing sand in someone's eyes earlier. If a player does that, make the um, opponent make a dexterity saving throw, or be temporarily blinded or whatever. Make make their next attack with disadvantage. You know, while they're wiping the sand out of their eyes. It's simple, but just it's something a little bit more interesting, and it encourages them to interact with the world in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. Like. I the example that's sitting in my head and I need to get out of my face is um, <laughs> is if you're in a bar fight or something and you know you do the classic smash a bottle on the side and make a sharp weapon out of it yeah that's amazing give them bonus damage you know that they've been creative they've had some fun do something interesting also as I was talking earlier about sort of just clipping someone with an axe or whatever hitting a specific part of their body I've been reading a lot of DMs Guild stuff recently about injuries and adding those into the game. And I think, a bit of a spoiler for our campaign, but I'm going to start bringing in the concept of being injured into the game. Because I think that's something that it's really... I think that's something that it's really missing. Um, Because you can, between (laughs) full health and zero health, you have really... There's really no impact on your actual your ability yeah. to continue, <clears throat> things like that. Whereas I think it's, it makes combat much more exciting if you feel the need to protect your head, for example. If um, if you see a bandit sitting in the bushes, ready to fire a crossbow at you, you manage to get the shot off quicker and fire in their shooting arm, hit them in the right bicep They're or whatever. unlikely to still be aiming perfectly straight at you. Exactly. And it, <laughs> I've done it again. Sorry, during editing, <laughs> there was a bit of a joke that I say, I don't do this normally, but apparently when we're recording, I feel the need to say exactly a lot. So look out for that. Um, take, take a, a shot. shot. <laughs> take a shot every time I say exactly. Or don't don't. You'll die. Drink responsibly. <laughs> Drink responsibly. Here we promote safe drug use. Safe responsible drinking. Responsible drinking. Um, maybe don't do them at the same time. Well, it depends on the evening, doesn't it? I think the enemies are intelligent. They should be intelligent. They should be um, working tactically. And one of those things, one one of their aims should be to incapacitate powerful people. If you've got a squishy sorcerer, you know, in your group, then the enemies should be aiming to incapacitate them. And if you introduce injuries to that as well, then there's so many things you need to think about. That if the sorcerer's most powerful spell uses a somatic, uses a um, somatic component, and and a bandit runs over and grapples them to prevent them from moving their arms, that is a big thing. They're not down. They're not injured. They're not out. 
they're not hurt in any way, but it makes it it makes it so much harder for the rest of the party and it, make, it forces them really to think tactically. And I think that's, supposed the thing that we should probably touch on next. Thinking tactically. Mm. Yeah, because obviously in the combat situations, you're going to do the best thing for the group and mm. you do have to respond to certain situations. So if, you're, if your main up front, up, your fighter who's up front most of the time is receiving a lot of damage, yeah. you've got to heal them because as soon as they break through that and that fighter's on the ground making death saving throws. Yeah. You've lost a valuable ally. Especially yeah. if you're if you're a rogue. I love <laughs> me some rogues. If you're a rogue and you need those advantage, but you need advantage for having your you can get sneak attack if you have an enemy within no an ally within five feet of an enemy. Yeah. And if that if that ally is down, you no longer get sneak attack damage. Yeah. And that extra however many dice can prove to like change yeah. the fight. Um, we should say there that that rule, the I, I think the sort of advantage on flanking rule is actually an optional rule in fifth edition, but we have always used it because yeah. it's just it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Um, just and it and it again forces players to think in a bit more of a tactical way. And yeah, I completely agree with you. I think Wizards of the Coast have done a really good job with this edition in particular of encouraging players to work together with things like that with sort of advantage on flanking and sneak attack with if um, one of your allies is uh, engaged in combat with an enemy because it really forces you to place each member of your team in the optimal position to make sure you maximise damage Indeed. output and stuff you want your your squishy wizards and sorcerers to be hidden yeah. safely you want your fighters up front mm. making those attacks and you want anyone with long range weapon long range weapons to be making the, their long range attacks from the best position possible, yeah. which in some cases is hidden behind a tree, ducking out every yeah. now and then to make the attack. But occasionally, they do have to change those weapons and go up front, yeah, go up close definitely. and personal, definitely. in in a place where there is a lot of cover for the enemy. The yeah. a long range attack isn't going to cut it. They are going to have to get up close. Yeah. And equally <coughs> baffling, I know. That the enemies should be being should be doing exactly the same thing. They should be making intelligent decisions about where to place their, you know, members of their group. If you assume that going back to bandits again, I know I'm talking about them a lot, but they're very helpful <laughs> in this analogy. If you've got a group of bandits, they're really not that different to an adventuring party if you think about it. They're probably mainly melee and ranged sort of um, you know, weapon users. There probably aren't very many spellcasters or things like that. But they're also going to be trying to give each other advantage using their placement. Again, yeah. as I mentioned, it is, it is a double blade, double edged sword. Yeah. If you get advantage on flanking, yes, so they do, do as well. Exactly. And as uh, coming back to earlier, a bandit who sees someone sort of slinging spells, you performing lots of sort of actions with their hands, is going to want to level the playing. Yeah, field. exactly. It's going to want to tackle them, <laughs> tackle them to the ground, grab them. But also, I think. Things like that not only make are beneficial for you know the opposing team. They really, really up the fun. They really do because there was a fight early on in Curse of Strahd that you played with um, a vampire spawn called Doru. Oh yeah. Um, and there were a couple. And the thing is, his tactic is. We should say spoiler alert for anyone who's going to play alert Curse of Strahd. Anyone who's going to play Curse of Strahd. Um, but well, I mean, Doru is not hidden. He's not a secret. Yeah, but they don't. you don't have to fight him. Yeah. I suppose that's true. But his tactic, spoilers, spoilers, DMs, you can listen to this. Players, if you're playing Curse of Strahd and haven't fought Doru or encountered him, give us like don't. three minutes and come <laughs> back. Make a cup of tea. Probably. Don't forget about the cup of tea though, because you don't want your cup of tea to go yeah, cold. Yeah, you don't want that at all. There's nothing worse than a cold, cold cup of tea, except like. Okay. Um, yeah, skip, press, you know the skip forward 15 seconds. Yeah, like button. eight Just times, ten times. Ten times from now. That's hella times. Like that's, 100, that's 150 seconds. That's only two and a half minutes. Sometimes. <laughs> press it sometimes. And if we're still talking about Curse of Charles, but Curse oh, okay. yeah, words. Curse of Strahd. See, this is why you don't do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> what else am I supposed to have with my morning croissant? <laughs> what? Anyway... His main tactic is to grab onto a squishy and... Okay. A squishy. Grab onto a squishy. Ooh. That is a horrible, horrible euphemistic. 
kind of sentence that I've just said. Anyway. Grab onto a character who has a low amount of hit points. Yeah, exactly. Grab onto one of those. Um, and one of those. What would you? What would you call it, Zav? I would. A squishy. I might call it a squishy. Anyway, I think that's a fairly common thing. Anyway, they grab onto um, a character with low hit points, and they drain them of their maximum health. He a couple of claw attacks, maybe one claw attack, and then grapple them and drain them of their maximum health, which not only um, obviously damages them, it prevents them from being healed, which creates this amazing panic in your players. And I know that there was some panic in that fight when our... Um, our, sorcer- our sorcerer does not have many hit points as it stands. And all. he lost like six? No, m- more than that. Mm-hmm. I think I think he had maybe I think it was he had seven hit points he had a max, oh, hit, max hit points max of, hit points of seven yeah. um, by the time Doru was sort of done with him and I can't remember was it was it the monk maybe who they're, they're not they're not gra- no 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 well I mean tried to heal him a few times but obviously his hit point maximum was dropped it was um, I mean they're not phenomenal well they're not phenomenally well known for their grappling I mean they're high dexterity normally yeah. fairly low strength monks but um, this player was forced to, I mean, I don't want to say waste a turn, because obviously it was incredibly helpful, but it's a fairly high damage output class. And instead of making the two, you know, powerful punch attacks yeah. they could have made, was forced to grab the sorcerer and try and yank him away. And I thought that was just such an exciting moment, because it was like, because um, Duncan, who was playing the, playing the monk, had to really sort of weigh Munken. up Munken. Munken, there you Duncan. go. Sorry, Duncan. Um, Funken the Munken was um, he had to really sort of weigh up in his mind do, like, do I try and finish him off with sort of melee damage or do I try and yank him away? Because one more round of damage on the sorcerer played by our friend Max could have just killed his character yeah. outright. And I think that might have been Duncan's first session with us. We'd had a couple before without him. But I think that might have been... It's, it was definitely the first or second. Yeah, so I think he was just like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. And obviously Duncan came th- came to our group through Max. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think he felt the he, need if, to If he of... lost the guy he came through, I was <laughs> ending up just playing with three people. Oh, he didn't really it was, know. It was, something would have happened, Max yeah. made a new character or whatever. Um, but, God, I... I, I I think that's just such a memorable, exciting moment. And do you know why? Because there was some variation in that round. The enemy was being intelligent. It was playing tactically perfectly, which forced the players to play tactically perfectly or face losing um, a member of their group. And then the thing is, if you want to go into the idea of action economy, as soon as you lose a member of your party, you're much more likely to continue losing. You start on this death spiral because you have fewer attacks or actions per yeah. round. And it's so... Not, I mean, it's self-preservation. Yeah, well. and obviously the one thing that gives you an advantage over a single enemy is your is the yeah. fact that you outnumber him. Yeah. And as soon as you keep cutting down the amount of people who can attack him, yeah. you lose a number of, like, hit, hits that you're going through. Yeah. The amount of damage dealt is decreases. Yeah. Especially if you have like a big boy with like a hefty amount of damage he's taken out, mm. that that can sometimes be like twenty, forty percent of your damage gone. Yeah, definitely. Because quite, I mean, fighters and other upfront characters like a part of their job is to just be sort of a, a damage sponge, just to like get yeah. in people's face, take the hits, so the sort of slightly lighter, weaker characters don't have to. And as soon as the sponge is gone. You're getting wet, like you're getting. You're going to receive all this sort of, all the sort of massive damage that you've been avoiding. And other characters who aren't the sort of big boys are going to go down much quicker. So after you lose one big lad, it's going to be difficult yeah. to recover. I think uh, another very important thing, more about keeping the flow of the combat going, is knowing what you're going to do on your turn. Definitely, because if you know what you want to do, then you can just speed that along and combat doesn't take the amount of time that it would normally because considering that a battle that lasts about a minute takes about an hour to Mm. go through you will end up you can fly through that and if if, obviously if you want to spend more time on combat you're you need more chances to do combat because one battle 
whether it takes two hours or one hour, yeah, the same amount of stuff is going to happen. Yeah, it's just one of them's been done with more efficiency. Yeah, and you really need the sense of peril for a fight to be exciting. Otherwise, it's just rolling dice, killing the enemies one by one, and they're gone. So, as we talked about earlier, making the players feel a bit overwhelmed, having the opponents either equal them or sort of outmatch them in terms of numbers, play tactically well, obviously not, obviously appropriate to their intelligence. If they're a ton of goblins, then they're going to, you know, they're going to play like goblins. They're going to be idiots. They're going to be selfish. They're going to run away as soon as... You know, they're hurt, they're not going to protect other people. But like things like kobolds are going to be much more intelligent and play sort of more, more tactically. Um, so being overwhelmed, obviously you want your players to play tactically, as I was saying before, but it's D&D, it's not a game of chess, which means that you shouldn't have infinite time to think of your next move at any given point. You really shouldn't. If you can sit there and sort of calculate all of the possible outcomes of each possible decision you could make in a turn that's so boring it's It's, so boring it's also very unlike any form of real combat yeah exactly you don't have you don't have the time to sit through and go oh if i do this this will happen but if i do this then this could happen yeah you can't sit and calculate lines like you can chess game you should have not a large amount of time to think about what you're going to do and execute your plan. Your character has, what, six Six seconds? Six seconds to think of what they're going to do and do it. So you, like, maximum two minutes, I think. I think actually setting a timer is something that I'm going to start doing more frequently, just getting players to... Because that not only forces players to think about their turn in advance because they don't have much time to think about, but if something changes on the battlefield, they need to change their plan really really quickly they need to sort of get their head around the new situation and deal with it deal with what's in front of them um and that's what makes it exciting if you feel if you if you feel like um your character and you know your adventuring party is in actual constant danger that's what makes the fight really exciting if you if if the players go in thinking this is just another fight we'll get to the end of this we'll have a rest whatever absolutely no excitement and obviously occasionally you're going to need some of those because if you're all in a random encounter table and a group of four level four adventurers encounter a bear or whatever you're going to wreck the bear you're going to wreck the bear but so like you know sometimes for for a bit of realism you need encounters like that yeah I think it definitely adds to the 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 playthrough of the game when you your character could die hmm. if you if you're sitting there and you you know you're going to come out the other side with your character in one piece then it's not really you haven't lost and you're not going yeah. to lose anything but you're also not getting anything from that experience yeah and i know where people who feel they need to respond to this are, are going to say things like oh well you can't have every fight be sort of like you know, death-defying. You can't have every single combat encounter. That, that is true. I mean, there yeah, are ones that, that you will true. easily defeat yeah. whoever you're going to What I was about to say is, coming back to the idea that the enemies are intelligent, if they're massively outnumbered, if the combat's going to be impossible for them to win, they're probably going to run. And this is something that I think lots of DMs forget about. These, in the world you've created, are not... They don't exist for the purpose of being killed by the players. A bear has encountered the players because it's foraging around for food. If it encounters four heavily armed, you know, individuals, it's going to run. It might try and intimidate them to see if they'll back off. But by and large, it's going to run back to its cubs or whatever. Like, you know, it has, it has an intention. It has a reason for being there besides existing for the players' fun. So if you roll a random encounter and it's the aforementioned bear, they might not attack. They might like you can use it to generate a bit of fear. You can have, you know, a large bear lumbering past one of the players, sort of eyeing them through the trees and then sort of shifting away and disappearing. That's sort of exciting. Yeah, that's the thing, because I mean in a lot of situations, if you come across something in its natural habitat, are you gonna go out of your way to kill it or is it going to go out of its way to kill you probably not not. really well if you're alone and you're fighting a bear then okay it's like it's going to go for you because you know you're an easy meal but 
if you're a big group of people, you're not going to be the bear's main target. Yeah, definitely. Because it's going to, in the way that you should be picking your fight, it's going to be thinking, hmm, this isn't really an easy meal. I'm going to go find something somewhere else. I really recommend looking on a website, which I think is called The Monsters Know What They're Doing which is a really phenomenal... And I think, actually, the author of that website is bringing out a book soon. So if you want to support him, please do that. His work is amazing. It's been really helpful to me. But it's a, it's sort of a blog-type thing with all sorts of different types of monsters that tells you how they think in combat situations, which is absolutely fantastic. You can read sections on goblins, on different types of dragons, on various things, and for each given turn, it will tell you the creature's priority. Say it's a dragon. Um, it will, For example, it will always use its breath weapon first if it can. That's its best that's its best ability, you know, things like that. But then it will have other priorities after that. It might target specific people, it, you know, what, whatever, like, whatever its particular priorities are. And then obviously its other abilities, if it can fly, it will make sure it can fly, it will shift out of the range of things. But also, fantastically, he doesn't just talk about the mechanics of this combat. I, the one that I really vividly remember is, is, I think it was one about red dragons. It might have been particularly an adult or ancient red dragon or something. But he factors the arrogance of the creature into the combat tactics. So towards the beginning, the dragon's not really trying that hard. It's like, I've got this, and it sort of toys with the players. It sort of fucks about with them a bit. It might. It, it doesn't really have necessarily any order to its attacks because it's just sort of having fun. But as it starts to be put on its heels, it starts thinking much more tactically, and it changes its turn order and its priorities, and it won't waste any turns giving a little monologue or whatever as it might do at the beginning. It will start thinking more tactically, and different types of dragons he talks about the more arrogant dragons will fight for longer. Less arrogant ones might run, might fly away, in the hope that you know they'll um, come back stronger and be able to defeat the party more easily. But arrogant dragons, their pride will keep them fighting. He, it's so detailed, it's really fantastic, I really recommend you look at it. Probably the final thing that we're gonna talk about before our little break is terrain. We talked about using the environment earlier in sort of a microcosmic kind of way. Grab a handful of dust, grab a glass off the counter, smash it, you know, all those little things. But terrain, it really changes the game. Fighting on in a sort of stone room, not that much to worry about. Not much cover is, you know, one thing, but it's fairly standard. It's, you know, big square, you can run about on it, no difficult terrain, anything like that. That's very different to, for example, fighting in a forest. Lots of cover everywhere, fewer lines of sight, ranged attackers are going to be less useful because, you know, they can maybe fire 10 feet in one direction before they hit a tree, things like that. Height of various things can really make a difference. Imagine you put a group of archers at the top of a small hill or a slope that they, they can easily access from the other side, but your side is much more difficult to deal with, you end up with, again, that feeling of peril because it's like shooting fish in a barrel for the enemy. They can take pot shots down into this hole that the players are in and they, again, feel like they're not in the position of power. And I think the game gets boring when the players constantly feel like they're in the most powerful position they can be in. Yeah, and I think it also, in situations like that, you do have to adapt to what's happening around you. Yeah. So, obviously, a wizard in a closed, small, small room mm. won't be able to use as many area of effect spells yeah. as as he would in maybe a forest, because yeah. there's the danger that he's going to hit other members of his party, and yeah. possibly himself. Yeah, and also, if there's loads of trees about for cover... A, you're not going to use um, as much area of effect anyway because lots of enemies will, enemies will be able to protect themselves using the trees, for example. But also, make sure that you factor in things like, okay, if it's you know a hot day in a fairly dry forest, the wizard should not be using fire spells because things will catch fire and that will change the terrain. But I like fire. I know you like fire. Sorry. <laughs> Like that picture you drew me that's on the fridge. Yeah. And all the, yeah. That's, the that's adorable. Not to um, be confused with the one your brother drew of your family. Yeah, yeah. Although it looks it's pretty shit. 
coming back to changing the terrain, I think, obviously it's sort of, I suppose I hadn't really talked about, <laughs> finished talking about terrain in general, but you, you know, difficult terrain, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just rocks everywhere, maybe something slippery, maybe, you know, all sorts of things can be more interesting, can, can sort of just make the battlefield more difficult to navigate. Anything that stops you from running between two places as easily as running between them is anything, like, is m- much better than having nothing. Even just fighting in a dining room. Big table in the middle, chairs everywhere. It's so simple, but they need to be able to navigate running round this thing or vaulting it, and maybe that requires an acrobatics check. It's probably a low DC, but, you know, it, it changes movement. It means getting from one place to the other isn't, oh, I use my 30-foot movement speed to get from here to here. It's okay to get to the person I want to attack, who maybe is you know, attacking one of my friends, I need to perform an acrobatics check or something like that. Just anything to make the environment a little bit more interesting. But that sort of brings me on to changing the terrain, which I think is a really big thing. I think anything that you you can do or your players can do to change the environment that they're fighting in makes the fight much more exciting. Going back to the sort of hillside, perhaps one of the archers up there, it seems to be wasting a couple of turns they're not firing any arrows they're sort of like you see them hitting against something repeatedly like shoulder barging something and you don't really know what they're doing but a player makes a decent perception check and they're trying to dislodge a boulder and then not only does that make it a bit more interesting if they do dislodge the boulder then tons of players need to make a dexterity check or they're going to be yeah they're going to take a lot of damage yeah but also they have to be bolder than that (laughs) nice um, they, it gives them a time limit for something, doesn't it? It means that while all these other archers are firing at them, they need to focus fire on this one dude, or hey, they're going to be crushed. Hey, what do you think that archer's favourite band is? The Rolling Stone. Dang, get out of my house. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> back to where we were before Dan ruined my life. Um, no, you're going too far back now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sort of finishing off just my previous point, anything that gives the players a sense of urgency, be that the two-minute time limit on their turn, be that the enemy is trying to accomplish something simpler than attacking them, anything like that is going to make the combat much more interesting. Maybe one of them runs away, but for some reason, whatever, like, I mean, the setup to each different combat, each different um, adventure is going to be different, but the one guy they're here to get is running. And there's loads of other people firing at them. They're doing them, they're dealing them damage, and you can't, and it's, you know, it's going to be difficult to sort of just get past these people, but the one dude you need is running away. And that really sort of pressures the players into making a decision. Do they... Fight through. Do they sit, sit and fight? and Or do they run straight through risking the opportunity attacks because the one guy they really need is getting away and they don't know when they're going to encounter him again? Anything like that. But Brit- And also... Sorry, I've just thought of another point. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I read something on um, D&D Beyond recently. They've got some pretty good articles on there, you know. Like, I always just used it for characters, but the writers, uh, some of them are like proper Wizards of the Coast writers, and they've got some really good ideas. But there's one about bringing the narrative into the combat, which I actually probably now, thinking about it, won't go into too deeply. But go on D&D Beyond, and there's... I can't... Like, scroll down a bit. There was There's a fairly recent article, I think in the past two weeks... About this is aired on the twenty sixth of August. This, or this is has going, been recorded on the twenty sixth of August. This is going so to be this is recorded on the twenty sixth. Some point of August twenty nineteen. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. There's a fantastic article about bringing the narrative into the combat, even if it's just through clothing, or through what you fu- or the kinds of weapons the enemy is using. You know, all sorts of things that can tip players off like combat styles that can give clues to your players about um, 
who then these particular enemies are allied with, what their aim is, things like that. Just dropping clues in throughout the combat. But again, as I said, I'm not going to go too far yeah. into that. I think another point worth making whilst we're on that is that if you see that guy who looks a bit suspicious, you might not want to kill him. You might want to just knock him unconscious and Definitely. take him in for questioning. And you can always ask the DM to that you want your damage to be non-lethal. Yeah. Like obviously in some cases that's unfeasible. Yeah. But in certain cases where if, if you're going to finish them off with a punch, you, a punch is, unlike, is less likely to kill someone than a sword attack. Yeah, definitely. And in those situations, obviously it depends on the DM, but in those situations I would ask to see if I can do that. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, it's fairly easy for a DM to flavor just in that like you see that they're very low on you see the enemy's very low on health and instead of hitting them with your blade you hit them with the pommel right on the head you knock them out you know it's simple um just make sure so there's no confusion you tell your dm on like on the round um or even at the beginning of the combat you say okay i the damage i'm doing i don't want it to be lethal i just want to knock this person out because then there's no contention after you, like after you've dealt your killing blow or whatever you and you, you can't say oh i want it to be non-lethal because i mean i mean some dms all about that some some won't um but yes as you were saying interrogation massive thing and that's obviously a separate part of the game to combat but don't forget that combat isn't always for killing and in fact the most interesting combats are Fought with the aim of accomplishing something else. And I think on that note, we're going to go for a break. Hello and welcome back to DM Me. Uh, during the break, our creative team has told me I'm not allowed to make any more jokes. <laughs> Also, side note, during our break, I did go to the loo and I did get my phone open and watch a video of a great white shark and now I'm scared. <laughs> they don't live in the toilet, Zal. They don't. It's I, no. And they also, also, they couldn't fit through I that I haven't part. even considered the possibility of them living in the toilet and now you've really, you've really broken me, I have to say. I apologise. Have you heard of cookie cutter sharks? No. They're, no, they're the most horrifying thing ever. They don't even... They don't, like, kill their... Sort of, their prey. They're these little... They're like normal fish-sized frickin' sharks that, like, attach to the side of something much bigger than them, like a frickin' whale or something. They bite in with their sort of, like, lamprey-like circular mouths and they fucking swivel around 360 degrees, remove a plug of, like, meat <laughs> from the thing they're attacking and just swim off with it. While they're, this poor bloke they've attacked has just got a hole in them. <laughs> If there are any children listening, then we apologise for the nightmares that may bring you. It's horrifying. It's brought me nightmares. Fuck the children. Don't fuck the children. Don't, I'm, yes. I'm not encouraging that. We've made a mistake. I'm sorry. Anyway, time for the questions. Our first question is brought in by Max, the only member of our creative team. No, no, no one of the many members one of our extensive creative team. One of the many members of team. our extensive creative team. He's also a fan. He's the biggest fan. He's the... He's like a wind turbine. I was about to say the only... Okay, go on, man. Do the punchline. How is he like a wind turbine, Dad? Because he's a big fan. He's a big fan! He's a big fan! <laughs> Sorry, I apologise. I've already fucked up on the no jokes. <laughs> I was going to say he's also our only fan, but also that's not true. No, we, we have fans. we also, have had eight plays of 11. our... We've had, ele- we've had 11 We've had plays. 11 plays of our previous episode at the time of this recording. Um, so get on with it. We know there are thousands of you. <laughs> Maybe it's because they're all huddled by speakers like around campsites. They're they're huddled round speakers. We knew it would happen. We just didn't think it would happen so early on. But yes, back to the questions. So our first question is, as we said, from our good good friend Max, and he asks It's not really a question, but he but he says D D Beyond versus paper gaming. Well, I mean, both both have their 
pluses both have their drawbacks mm. in the case of D&D Beyond it's only accessible if you have the internet this is also true so if you are trying to play on a plane good luck yeah I mean if you're trying to play on a plane good luck anyway mate. Yeah, you know I hope what? you don't have any minis because turbulence is going to wreck them <laughs> This is true. This is true. But yes, um, D&D Beyond is a good good place to go to for making characters, especially if it's your first time and you don't know how to do the yeah, maths. Yeah, it really does run you through the process really easily. Indeed. It's very, very understandable. It's, um, it's easy to use. The limitations with it is that unless you're willing to... Buy, uh, pay more, you only have yeah. access to stuff from the basic rules. Which yeah. is still quite a lot. You get access to the 12 classes. You get 10 races, 12 races maybe. Yeah. Um, but you do only have access to one of the archetypes of each class. Two, I think. No, it's one. But the Barbarian gets... Um... No, you only get part of the Berserker. I thought you got Totem Warrior as well. Oh, but that's dumb because Totem Warrior is in the player's handbook. Oh, no, you do get Totem Warrior. Sorry. See? Sorry, I apologise. I know things. Yes, um, D&D Beyond is good because you only you but you do only get access to a few of the class archetypes the mm. subclasses yeah whereas with paper gaming you are able to do use source want, books mate. exactly yeah. do whatever you want you can take the source books you can even make your own archetype if it's okay with the DM and just so D&D Beyond don't have a go at us not that they would anyway um, they're too busy sponsoring Crit Roll too fun. busy sponsoring Crit Roll um you can make your own archetype from D&D Beyond. It, you can make your own homebrew stuff and post them on the internet and share them with people and, and get other people's homebrew stuff, but it won't do the maths for you. When you um, you know, put in your own subclass into um, whatever character you're making, it's not going to do the maths for you, which is fine. You can sort of sort that out anyway. Um, D&D Beyond is the only real advancement in the game that we've experienced during our playtime. We don't have the benefit. Our, our playtime is the limit of the last two years. To, just over two years Just now. under two years. Just under two years. No, no, over. I got a Snapchat story, I got a Snapchat history the other day with me with a character sheet. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah, it was around August we were doing it. Sorry, yes. Yeah, so, so, shut up, Dan. Sorry. Um, so we haven't had the benefit of playing multiple editions, but the only thing we've re- the only change we've really experienced is our first few sessions were played with paper and pen, you know, classic. And then from then on, we've sort of used D and D Beyond, yeah. and that's partially because most of our games are played from afar. Indeed, we do live across the country. This is probably the last podcast you'll hear where we're well, sitting across from each other. Indeed, yeah. well, for the meantime yeah we're go- we're going to be recording from a distance from now on pretty much from at least three miles apart many more than three miles apart but, but that's at fine. least three is at least three covered in that range it's true um but i suppose oh there are just so many there are so many things to talk about in the, in the difference it's but... always good to reference stan lee's quote which is um <laughs> okay i think most people probably know the quote we're talking about but go on it's um he was he was talking <laughs> he was talking about paper comics versus comics on the internet and he said something along the lines of it's always great to look at boobs on the internet but, but I'd you'd rather, rather have one in your hand, hand. Uh, which you know bit of a he's a fantastic guy but that was a bit of a lecherous old man moment that we like to forget um, was a fantastic guy rip rip Stan yeah there are so many differences to talk about I think. D&D Beyond does really streamline the game, but it forces all the players to have a phone or a tablet or a laptop out, and I think sometimes that can break the immersion in the game. It can be distracting. I ran a fairly uh, terrible game at university earlier this year, where I made—I think I sort of made the mistake of it was a group of people who had never played before. It was a group of well, it was a group of six or something people who had never played before, which is already a decent-sized group, but difficult to run even if they're experienced. Um, but they never played before, and they made all the characters on D&D Beyond. So, of course, they spent all the time on their phones. And because, obviously, there's, you know, phones do everything. They do everything. They have absolutely no obligation to stay on D&D Beyond, so they have no obligation to focus, if you see what I mean. So I think perhaps with brand... It's, it's sort of a toss-up, because with brand-new players who are older, I think you want to. You sort of... 
You, well, you want to make their character on D&D Beyond because it makes the character creation process much easier. But print off. Print it off the for sheet. the actual game because then they have it in front of them and they're not getting distracted all the time. However, there's been a sort of, I want to say resurgence, but it might be the first time it's happened, of D&D, Beyond, D&D in general being used for educational purposes. I don't know if you've seen any of these things about certain schools in America um, using um, sort of after-school clubs, D&D, to help improve children's math skills. Um, arithmetic and stuff like that and obviously yeah. you don't you don't use D&D Beyond for that because it does all the maths for you yes. but also basically each to their own everyone's got uh, a, you know a great benefit uh, can get a great benefit from either of them I think for beginners make the character on D&D Beyond then print off the sheet for them especially if they're young because um, it means that they can you know do the maths themselves yeah. and it really helps and it really helps them out um, for more experienced players and players who've been playing the game for a long time, D and D Beyond is not really going to distract them from yeah. what they're there for, which is the game. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And but also, I found that the longer I've played the game, the more I want a sheet. I don't know what it is. The more I want a, a sheet in my hand, it's sort of it's sort of the dice thing, like how playing online. I mean, I always play with my dice at my desk and, you know, use my rolls from there. But, you know, lots of people use Roll20 and play and roll their dice online, which I just find very dissatisfying. I really like the sort of tactile, kind of hands-on version of the game, which is why I just think a sheet is great fun. And I nearly always, if I have access to a printer, prefer to print off my sheet rather than keep it online. I don't know why. It's a personal preference. Next question... We sort of touched on it a moment, well, it was very, very lightly a moment ago, um, when I mentioned Roll20. Um, Max asks, tabletop versus lounge versus online. Tabletop versus lounge is the first part of that. Tabletop, tabletop. over lounge, surely. Uh, I, I, know, I know what he's getting at. Like, lounge is sort of quite a relaxed game, have a few... I don't know, have a couple of drinks, sort of chill out, play the game. Okay, Dan's doing a sort of, um, he's miming spliff. Um, but that's because... Kids, really, no, don't, don't, do, don't drugs. do drugs. Dan is not being particularly helpful today. I'm not the biggest role model um, for drug. Role model, very nice. <laughs> Thank that's you. That's the name of our next podcast. I see what he's getting at with lounge. Sometimes you do want a really chill game. You just want to, like, muck about, have a chill day, have a couple of drinks. We've had a couple of Drinks and Dragons games, which have been, you know, quite fun. But it is, it's a different game. And if you're getting together to have drinks, maybe something that requires concentration, like D&D, probably yeah. isn't the best activity. So I think tabletop wins. But tabletop versus online, what do you think, Dan? I think when you have the chance to play in person, you should take that chance. Yeah. But if you have to play online, then... If you have no other choice, play online. Mm. Because it's better to play than not play at all. Yeah. But if you can get together, I think that being everyone being in the same room at the same time, just the immersion is so much more than when you're Skyping across or just using any other form of mass communication software. We are not limited to Skype (laughs) here. The options include but are not limited to <laughs> Skype and Google Hangouts <laughs> and Discord and Discord um, all very good and FaceTime and fa- Dan stop it <laughs> um, Microsoft Teams if you're playing with a business <laughs> but yeah as you were saying tabletop in, if you can tabletop if you can online the immersion is just unparalleled like especially for like a really story driven game like we sort of have I really like being able to act out characters sort of physically as well as with my voice and with my face and And having conversations with my players in character is so much easier if you could just like look them in the eyes exactly and obviously Gary Gygax came up with this game before we had this kind of software and obviously this has helped us help games become more regular but the original way to play is yeah online has has really changed the game and, yeah, and perhaps I don't want to say I think kept it alive is probably not true well maybe like like the sort of uh, online 
prevalence of D&D and like the sharing of content about it probably has saved the game in many ways but playing online has brought to the game just so many people who wouldn't be able to play it otherwise Indeed. I'm in a Facebook group uh, which is sort of this large community which I largely sort of use to sort of get critiques on maps that I draw or ideas that I have about campaigns and sort of get ideas um, for myself um, but there are constantly people in that group saying oh you know I live on the eastern seaboard of the US um, nobody around me plays D&D does anyone have a Skype game I could join and within 20 minutes they've got three or four people in the comments saying come and join our game and it is it's such a nice thing to see for these people who, you know, perhaps their friends really, really aren't into it. Perhaps there's just no one around who is interested in the game. You can play with people you don't know online with ease, and it's amazing. Tabletop if you can, but online can save the game for some people. Our third question is a short one. Is there such thing as too many dice? No. no. Our fourth question, ideal group size. Is one-on-one play possible? Okay, should we start with ideal group size? Ideal group size. What do you think? I think around four four party members or five party members is easy to control. Yeah. It's a lot easier to split up between members. People don't feel as though they're being Mm. left out. Smaller groups are good as well, two or three, but obviously you can't have... Or in in my opinion, you can't have as many big encounters. Yeah. Because obviously you're limited by the number of people yeah. you have. Of course. Um, there are two schools of thought on this. I think the first school of thought is there is a correct answer. If you ask Mike Miles or Chris Perkins, or you read the player's handbook or the DM's guide, CR, the sort of challenge rating of monsters, is based on having a party of four. The game is written around having a party of four. So you could argue four is the quote-unquote correct or quote-unquote best number for a party. I don't necessarily think that's true. I'm sort of in the second school of thought. But when you're balancing encounters, which is something we're going to talk about in the future, definitely, I think that's a sort of really interesting topic. Group size is something you really need to think about because it's not as simple as you've got more players so you up the difficulty of the monster because having more players, regardless of their level, overwhelmingly um, stacks the odds again in the favour of the players because of something called action economy, which lots of you will probably be familiar with, lots of you might not be. But we'll talk about that in a later episode. If you're impatient, then Google D&D action economy and you'll find loads of interesting things. It's about the ratio of actions completed by the players versus actions completed by the monster. Um, and that really can turn the tide of battle. So messing about with numbers, like groups with numbers different to four, you know, is slightly more complicated, definitely. But, you know, groups can be run with many more or many fewer players, depending on your level of experience, what the game needs. Again, like we mentioned the last time, doing it by genre really helps. I think a Curse of Strahd game would really suffer if you had six or more players, to be honest, because the thing about it is you really need sort of regularity. You need a feeling of being overwhelmed, I think, for the game to work. Um, So things like having a huge party would really sort of take away the fear, I think, uh, which is essential to that kind of game. But, you know, if you've got a big sort of um, intrigue, politics-based game, there's nothing wrong with having a big group. Um, one more thing is I think having a big group makes you tempted to split the party more often, which is difficult to run and never really advised. Do you want to talk about one-on-one play? Because I haven't had that experience before. But um, I've run a couple of one-on-one games. I have a little brother who I've played um, a couple of one-on-one games with. This um, is the same little brother who drew the picture of the family on the fridge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and well, I, like as we were talking about earlier, really, is playing the game is great for his maths. It, it really is. Like he's a he's the, you know a reasonable mathematician. He's ten years old. He's a reasonably good mathematician as it is. But getting him to roll the dice and add all the numbers together, you know, it's educational. Do it. Play with your play D and D with your kids. Do it. Um, but one on one 
is possible. I think that you lose something by not having a party, but it is possible. And now, not only is it possible, it's actively catered for by material produced by Wizards of the Coast. The new... Um, it's not called the starter set. Basic rules. It's called the basic rules. <coughs> I think it might be called the basic rules. But the new book, that's the new sort of set that's out, I think it's being sold in like Target and stuff, which is pretty wicked. For like that's a main, a pretty mainstream American shop. Which I we're mean, British if you haven't gathered. <laughs> we yeah. we don't like as English people. We don't we don't have Target. But just the fact that it's in the mainstream shops yeah. anywhere is pretty cool. But those that set does actually cater for one-on-one play um, using, using I think, a mechanic that I've introduced called sidekicks, where you sort of create a party of two or three um, by having players, um, DMs run these really simple sort of extra characters. I, I think I, I'd be worried about... I haven't read it, but I'd be worried about that because I don't think DMPCs are necessarily a phenomenal idea. I think that can detract from the game a little bit. But... I haven't read it. It might be fantastic. And I have heard no bad reviews about the set, to be fair. So, you know, never know. It might be great. I think that is the end of today's podcast. I think it might be. Episode two. Who knew? Indeed. Who knew we'd get this This far? (laughs) But yes... Thank you for joining us in Not The Basement. Special thanks to Foil for the use of our theme song Bleach from their EP Like A Man. Our cover art was produced by Zav. It's temporary whilst our quote-unquote creative team gets working on a new one. We have a Twitter at DMMePodcast, that's D-M-M-E podcast. Or if you don't use Twitter, you can reach us at DMMEPodcast at gmail.com. I've been Dan. I've been Zav. And don't forget, if you think of any questions before we speak again, be sure to DM me. Bye. Bye.